Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Good day. My name's Alex Lenferner. I'm a climate justice campaigner with the non-profit organization 350africa.org. I'm also a secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition, a coalition of unions, civil society and community organizations dedicated to fighting together for climate justice. And today you're listening to the pilot episode of our podcast, Just Us and the Climate. We're very excited today because we're going to be talking about a just recovery to the impacts of COVID-19. As everybody knows, COVID-19 has not only been having devastating public health impacts, but it has also been having um, really uh, devastating impacts on our economy through the effects of the lockdown. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about the, the impacts of that, but we're also going to be talking about how do we recover from those economic impacts? How do we invest in a, a more just uh, future for South Africa as we emerge from this uh, COVID-19 crisis? So we're really fortunate to be joined today by two guests coming to us from the Institute for Economic Justice. We've got Carolee Osborne and Sonia Palatz. And uh, they're going to be talking to us about research that they engaged in, which basically explores what a just recovery for South Africa would look like. And before we dive into the technical details of the report, I thought I'd just start with a little bit of an icebreaker and ask them what their roles at the Institute for Economic Justice, or IEJ, are, what their roles are, and also what inspired them to, to work in this space. So maybe we start off by chatting to Sonia and then hand over to Carolee on that question. Thanks, Alex. I am a researcher at the IEJ. I research and co-organize a number of projects, particularly around feminist economics, the just transition, ESCOM, as well as the role of the state and the private sector in driving development. I am an economist by training, um, and I chose to study economics in varsity because um, only two years prior to my first year, the global financial crisis happened, um, and I kind of wanted to understand and know more about it and how it was affecting not only my life, but my community in the general and, you know, generally South Africa, the South African economy. But my understanding of economics has evolved considerably since then. And after various engagements, you know, with feminists, with unions um, and workers engaged in social justice work, these conversations um, were a real source of inspiration for me. I began to understand very clearly that my lived experience as a woman, particularly as a black woman, were inextricably traced or located within numerous systems of power. Um, and what really inspires me to work in this space is to make visible these connections, to make visible the work that women contribute to the economy, to make visible that which is often intentionally neglected or invisibilized in our discourses on our economy. Um, and so to interrogate, you know, what the economy is for and, you know, who it serves. Um, it's been a long, arduous journey, but it really inspires me to keep working in the space that actually allows me to think through these issues. Thank you for that. Uh, and I think that that perspective of how do we really connect all of those sort of intersexing in injustices and really explore that in the work of economics really comes through in this report. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. Thank you, Sonia. Carly, over to you. Sure. That's a hard act to follow there, Sonia. Um, so I also studied economics uh, and I studied economics, uh, philosophy, economics and politics. 
And um, I have to be honest, I absolutely hated economics. I thought it was terrible. Uh, I thought that I was going to take economics to understand how the economy works and to understand, you know, all the things I saw around me, inequality, unemployment, you know, all of these things. And by the end of three years, I was like, I don't understand a single thing about this. Um, and I, so I pursued politics uh, from from that point. But I kind of came back to economics because I started working at a think tank in Cape Town where I was engaging in a lot of things around mining and more things around macroeconomic policy and started to realize that actually, you know, there's a lot that I could learn about economics that economics at university wasn't telling me. And so I got involved in the Rethinking Economics uh, movement, planning the Rethinking Economics for Africa Festival, which which the IEJ organizes. And so that really made me realize that we need to change the way in which we think about the economy. We need to change the way in which we teach people about the economy. And a really big thing for me is about trying to put back the kind of morality and the value system to the study of economics. So initially, economics was a a discipline that really incorporated, you know, philosophical elements, really incorporated thinking about, um, you know, value claims, and that has all been taken out. And I think we've seen the effects of that, which is something we talk about a lot in the report, actually, the impact of that. So that really inspired me to kind of get back into a more economic sphere. And the climate justice stuff came because I started reading a lot around uh, the the, the climate the climate crisis and really starting to think about how the climate crisis is indicative of all of these problems and how it really is this one thing that shows us the way in which all of them intersect and I became really passionate about that and I really believe that uh, climate justice and climate justice work and organizing around that is one of the ways in which we can truly start to you know uh, find a more just world. Um, so I started doing some work with some young kids in Cape Town around this, and it was really inspiring. And so that's why I became more involved in the climate side. Thanks for that. And I think it's really interesting the point you made about economics being based in values, but not really recognizing in a sense, because we have like this cost-benefit analysis framework or the sense that GDP is everything that we're kind of aiming for in how we measure progress, but that's really a philosophical or a value judgment that's being made, which we don't Mm. recognize enough. So what's interesting in the work that you're doing is it's thinking about what are the other values that we should be thinking about in this sense of the just recovery when we're trying to aim at, you know, what it is that we should be trying to achieve for a society and measuring progress. Um, and I think it also speaks to like how there are different uh, visions for for what economics should be aiming at. And one of the ways that I've been thinking about that quite a bit in the face of this crisis is thinking about what is the purpose of our budget, right? Mm. And so we've seen Tito Mboweni, he's released his special budget in late June. And, you know, when Mboweni speaks about it a lot of it is about you know being fiscally responsible and tightening the belt Um, but i think a lot of people are critiquing it. it's not so much that he's tightening the belt perhaps tightening the noose around um, our economy because it is withdrawing investments needed to build out the parts of society that are you know really in desperate need of government funding right now and i know that the institute for economic justice was part of an initiative I think it's the Economists Initiative 
that sends a critique about Mboweni's budget. Um, and so could you speak a little bit about like why you were critiquing his budget, what's missing from it, um, and, and maybe incorporating some of the, the lenses that you've been talking about, about different approach to economics in that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you said uh, a tightening of a noose around the economy, but also not to be dramatic, but a tightening of the noose around the people who live in this country. Um, so the IEJ has been really critical of Tito Mboweni's supplementary budget for a number of reasons. I think the first thing is that it has shown that the uh, rescue package announced by the president earlier into the lockdown is basically not being instituted, right? So when that package was announced, a lot of people were quite happy about it. You know, there were a lot of problems, um, which we can talk about, but people were like, this is, this is some action, right? This is a, a major, a major step. And what we've seen is that basically none of that has been implemented and that a lot of the supplementary budget shows a kind of backtracking from, from those promises that were made there. And I think that's obviously incredibly dangerous for our short-term recovery uh, from, the, from the pandemic and from the lockdown. But what is even more concerning is the kind of longer-term or medium-to-longer-term trends that you've talked about already, Alex, around major budget cuts. So the budget... Um, uh, aims to cut 230 billion rand from the budget uh, over the next two to three years. Uh, and as you said, this is in the aim of a uh, budget surplus, right? We want to try to have a budget surplus by 2023, 2024. So I think if we try to think about what the impacts of, of those cuts are, it's really to one, uh, slow down the economy. So we know that the global economy at the moment is is really slowing down as a result of the lockdown, as a result of the pandemic. And what we really need to do is to try to stimulate our economy, right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that budget cuts don't happen in the abstract. They're not just numbers on a piece of paper, right? They're actually, they're representative of the impact on people's lives. One of the things we've seen this week is that some of the budget cuts to the Department of Mineral and Energy Resources will mean that rural electrification programs will be cut, which means tens of thousands of people who were supposed to get electricity in the next few years will not get electricity. You know, that's a really big impact. And you have to kind of ask yourself, to what end are we trying to get budget surpluses? In addition to that, uh, there are a lot of people who think, you know, it's completely unrealistic for us to even get to that surplus. But I think the real question is, to what end do we do that? What are our goals? Which goes back to our original uh, point about, what, you know, what is economics for? What do these principles do? And to try to think of it as not being this kind of value-free truth, but to think about, you know, what are the impacts? What are we really trying to gain? Thank you. Can I... Also, yeah, please, Sonia, jump in. The one is that research shows that cutting budgets or limiting government spending causes the direct opposite of what is intended, right? So there's this idea that the household budget and the economy function in the same way, that if your household has more debt than savings, then it needs to cut down on, it, on its expenses. But this is simply not true for an economy, right? Research has shown that expanding social spending actually leads to greater employment, for example. And our colleague Gilad Isaacs wrote a, a piece on this and actually showed that for every 1 billion government spends, GDP increases um, and it also increases jobs. So this means that, for example, if we spend 6% of GDP, for example, um, this would create over 3 million jobs. Um, and this leads me to my second point, which is, which is also highlighted in our paper is, is the notion that only GDP 
um, economic growth will save us from our current predicament, which we spoke to um, Alex. Um, and we have seen globally that the single focus on economic growth has had very perverse consequences. So yes, we can grow GDP, but this doesn't ensure that the gains of growth are actually experienced by everyone. So we've seen an increase in inequality in countries that have, you know, focused primarily on economic growth. And this has been exposed as damaging to the livelihoods, especially now because of the pandemic. Um, and in this way, I think the supplementary budget in many ways implicitly advocates for growth, for GDP growth. And presumably we will all be better off once we reach this budget surplus, as Carrie Lee said. But we need to focus on more inclusive and relevant measures of economic wealth besides budget surplus. You know, we need to focus on job creation, on sustainability, on eradicating hunger. These, these are far more pressing issues than achieving a budget surplus. And in this way, as my colleague always says, Busisi Beko, who's done ex- excellent work on this, austerity is a very political choice. It's a choice to prioritize a, a surplus over the dire effects that this will have on a society that is, you know, already crippled by unemployment and inequality. I think that the point that Busi always makes about austerity being a political choice is really key because economists, ma- mainstream orthodox economists, often like to present uh, these things as sort of obeying some sort of laws, right? As if it's like physics and this is just gravity, but that's just false. These are choices and there've been choices that have made that have resulted in the situation we have now, which is an incredibly unequal, uh, you know, high, highly like carbon intensive economy. And there are choices that were made and we can make different choices. And I think that's really the thing that we're trying to drive home in the report is that there are different choices to be made. And if we make those choices now, we can have a better society. And I think this question of like making different choices about how we stimulate the economy and which elements of it we want to is really vital. As you talked about, you know, South Africa is deeply unequal. So if all we're trying to do is grow a deeply unequal economy, we're only creating benefits for those on the top, mostly, of that economy. And so we've got to be aiming for something different. And so in your report, you start to talk about the idea of instead of you know thinking about austerity and cutting back in order to stimulate a deeply unequal form of economic growth, we've got to invest instead in a just recovery. And I think you've already started to touch a bit on what that looks like, but can you maybe unpack a little bit more about what is this notion of a just recovery And how does it differ from this sort of more austerity, economic growth focused um, approach? Yeah, so a just recovery is a a process, right? It it seeks to build resilience in our economies, in our institutions, in our communities. I think the pandemic has underscored and exposed just how important it is to build resilience against external shocks in our economies. Um, And the pandemic offers an opportunity, you know, a window for us to transform the structure of our economy, because if we continue um, on a trajectory that we are now, no doubt COVID-19 is is a glimpse into what other global catastrophes can happen with more and more ecological damage. And so a just recovery is important because the way we've been running our economies has entrenched inequalities, right? It has given us austerity. It has given us financial crises, unemployment, climate change. Um, and so the status quo needs to change to ensure our collective future and to ensure that we live in a world that is sustainable and livable, right? Um, and so the, the just recovery calls for complete reorganization of our economy. And we give a number of examples in the paper 
Um, but I would like to highlight one example in particular, which is our energy sector. Our dependence on fossil fuels, on coal for energy generation, has a catastrophic effects on our environment and our communities surrounding these coal mines. And many people, you know, have respiratory illnesses because of air pollution in nearby coal mines and are even more vulnerable to infectious respiratory illnesses or diseases rather such as COVID. And so a just recovery is about reversing this trend, right? And putting people's health, people's livelihoods first um, and not prioritizing profit. Yeah, I mean, I think Sonia's covered a lot of ground there. I think that it's very clear to us that we need a just recovery and that we can't just go back to normal, right? I think there's a lot of people who during the pandemic say things like, you know, I just want to go back to normal. We need to do these policies to like get back to normal. And the reality is that normal was pretty bad for the most of people in this country. And normal is what is setting us on a path to really destroying the planet in, you know, we've got like a decade to stop that. That's a really short time frame. And so I think that what we're really saying is that we actually don't want to go back to normal. We want to build a better world. And so for us, I think a just recovery is one that prioritizes people. It prioritizes the planet. It allows people to live better, healthier, happier lives. And it also allows us to to kind of uh, mit- mitigate for and build resilience to this crisis that we know is coming, right? And I think that we have some met- level of control over the depth of that crisis. And that's what we're really trying to, you know, pull it back and make it not as bad. But we also know that some of that is locked in, right? Like we know there's some element of the climate crisis and climate change that is locked in, and we really need to start building resilience for it. And as Sonia has said, what the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us is that we have not built nearly enough resilience into our economic and social systems. You know, if you look at the inability of hospitals to to uh, have, provide adequate health care for people, the inability of economies to provide adequate, adequate income support, all of those things have shown us that we have not built the resilience that we need to support people in this in this economy. And so I think that's really what a just recovery is about, is to try to start to build those things in. This idea of not going back to normal, I think, is really important. So we're trying to chart new territory and build a different, more just society. And in the idea of doing things in a new way, in this report, you've introduced some concepts which might be new to some people too. So I think a lot of people know about what the green economy is. It's about trying to invest in a more um, environmentally friendly way. But you also talk about a purple economy. Um, And I think that's a concept that might be new to some people. Um, And and so what is is this purple economy and how does it relate to the green economy? And can you mix green and purple? I think (laughs) you get brown if you mix those two together. And so can can you expand on that for me? Yeah. Okay. So let me start by explaining that the pandemic, as we have seen, has drastically foregrounded or underpinned the importance of care work in any functioning economy. From childcare to elderly care to healthcare, this has all been heightened under the conditions of a global pandemic. And part of understanding why is an, under, is an understanding that certain forms of work, such as care work, are being exploited um, and are completely undervalued and overused. And we need we we know that this care work is often gendered. So women usually undertake it and it is completely underpaid and often unpaid. And yet it is so vital for human well-being. Much like 
um, the way in which we have exploited the environment, right? There's this notion that national resources, that the natural world is a never-ending source for extraction. And yet, we need the natural world to exist for our well-being and the well-being of our future. And so the green economy was born out of that understanding that the crisis of climate change must be reversed and that we must adopt more sustainable methods of development. In that way, the purple economy runs parallel to the green economy in that it was conceived by feminist economists, feminists, ecofeminists as an understanding that the crisis of care must be reversed in order to build resilience in our economies and communities. And let me explain the two concepts in just in what I just said. So we call it purple because purple signifies the feminist movements around the world. It's merely a symbol of the movement, just like green is a symbol of the earth. And when I say crisis of care, I mean that society in its current form is less willing and able to provide sufficient care to everyone. It speaks to the decreasing ability of society to care for its people. Um, and even, and even, you know, the ability to care for oneself, self-care. Um, and a, a good example is a personal experience. A few weeks ago, my partner's grandmother had a stroke and we took her to the hospital to get treated. Um, but no hospital in the near vicinity was able to accept her. And we got turned away at every door. And that to me speaks to the dire state of our care economy, that our care services and care infrastructure are not built to take care of us all, even in the context of a pandemic. And this is because of a number of social and economic factors, right? Such as increased competitive free markets, globalization, increased privatization of care services like healthcare um, that have systematically prioritized profit um, and growth and expansion at the expense of general overall, overall well-being. And in South Africa, in the context of really high unemployment and persistent economic crisis, crises, we've also seen the deterioration of labor market conditions, particularly for unskilled workers who have less job security and longer working hours. All of this combined imposes strict limits on the ability of caring time and energy. And added to that, I think, to link it back to the green economy, because these are intersecting crises and struggles, as you said, as you mentioned, Alex, um, environmental degradation creates increasingly tough material conditions for livelihoods in rural subsistence communities where care work entails a substantial amount of unpaid productive work dependent on natural resources such as land and water and those natural inputs. So the purple economy is an economy that values care work and takes as priority transforming our economy such that it doesn't exploit the natural environment or care work. Yeah, I mean, I think Sonia has covered most of the things. I would just add two things is another key concept in the idea of the care economy is the idea of social reproduction, right? And, you know, in economics, you talk a lot about production, right? So that's like on the factory floor and that's like people making certain things. But what is missed out of that is the idea of, you know, how does that person, how does that worker come to be in that factory, right? And typically it is by the hands of a woman that, that someone comes to be there, right? That 
women uh, you know, give birth, that women typically you know, feed their families, they take care of their families. And there's a whole kind of realm of social reproduction that is critical to the economy, that without it, the economy can't function. But that labor is typically unpaid, right? It's, it's not recognized. So when we talk about GDP and problems with GDP, social reproduction is not included in typical measures of GDP, right? But without it, without that labor, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a functioning economy. So I think that's really trying to, what, what the purple economy does, right, is try to recognize that and try to like make visible this kind of often invisibilized labor. There's really great work on this by so many people, and I would highly recommend the work of Nancy Fraser if people want to kind of look more into, more into this. Um, and the other thing with that is, as Sonia has said, this has really clear links to the green economy. And I think one of the big ways in which this, this links is the fact that care work is inherently low carbon, right? So care work is like low carbon jobs. So if we're trying to kind of tackle all these multiple crises, one of the ways in which you do that is by creating more actual formalized care work, right? Community care workers, more nurses, more teachers, all of these things that, that have care work at their heart because you create more jobs, which obviously has an economic uh, benefit. It stimulates the economy. But then what you also do is provide services to a community that are good, right? People are happier when they have access to these services. Sonia's talking about her partner's grandmother not having access to care. If we had more of those kinds of jobs, that, that wouldn't be a problem. She would be happier. There are benefits to people's happiness and to their lives through this. But we're also then stimulating the economy in a way that is much more sustainable than developing mining jobs, right? So I think these things are really important to see the intersections of. And there have been studies that show that investing in care working jobs has just as much of an economic multiplier, so just as much of a positive impact on the economy as something like big infrastructure projects, right? Thanks for that. And it seems what kind of connects the, the green economy and the purple economy is recognizing that the traditional GDP type of measured economy doesn't recognize a lot of the services that are provided um, by both feminized labor, but also by the, the ecosystem services. Mm. And mm. so in both cases, what we're seeing is that the way that we measure progress through a narrow GDP focus is basically ignoring all this really important um, services that really do prop up and create society. And mm -hmm. by undervaluing and not recognizing that, it seems like basically we've got this very limited exploitative form of growth that we're pushing forward that fails to really incorporate that. And wh what I really like about the these concepts that you've introduced is it kind of shows us that you know, it moves us beyond that very limited sort of environmentalism, which is sometimes just about, you know, solar panels and wind turbines and trees. Metal straws. <laughs> yeah, <or> metal <laughs> straws instead of plastic. Um, and it, it talks about how these, these sort of environmental justice or climate justice concerns are much deeper. It's about looking mm -hmm. at the structures of our societies. It's about looking at what um, supports us and allows us to do the things that we do. And in that regard, in your report, you also talk about um, urban infrastructure as mm -hmm. a form of environmental and climate justice and, and how a just recovery needs to deal with the legacy of apartheid's spatial inequalities and create more just and sustainable communities. And I think this is a space where people don't often think about climate justice. Mm -hmm. And so could you maybe speak about like how does climate justice fit together in this notion of like urban infrastructure and urban inequalities? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is such a, an important uh, point to make. And it's really something that I've thought a lot about in recent years. And it's really very much inspired by a lot of the thinking in the US and in Europe around like the Green New Deal, right? And what a Green New Deal does. And I think it really speaks to what you've just said previously, Alex, around, you know, not limiting environmentalism to like certain kinds of, of activity. And I think for a really long time, uh, environmentalism was kind of a domain of, of people who were trying to protect very in very like obvious ways, you know, like nature, which I think is still really, really important. But what that does often is alienate a whole range of people who say to you, well, you know, why, why must I care about, you know, plastic bottles or why must I care about uh, these things when I don't have a roof over my head, right? How can I, how can I um, sit here and worry about, you know, uh, the turtles or the dolphins, right? When I like spend four hours a day trying to get to and from work in really cramped and uh, unsafe uh, transport options. And I think that it's really important to show the ways in which these things are really intersecting. And that's, um, and so the two examples that we talk about in the report are around public housing and public transport. And of course, in South Africa, this is like particularly important because one of the like major lasting legacies of apartheid is the fact that the spatial geography of apartheid remains very much intact, right? And so, uh, people were, uh, like, colored Indian and in particular black people were forced out of the cities, right, into like far-flung areas. They were provided with very few services and there's very few jobs in those areas. So people have been forced to have to travel very long distances to get into work. Um, and we have not developed any adequate public transportation systems in, in, in most places that are affordable um, and that can bring people into their jobs really safely. And one of the climate impacts of that, right, is that people sit then in traffic, like with major pollutants, right, coming out on in cars that are generally using fossil fuels, right, non-renewable energy sources. And so you have the, at the one time people sitting in like these and, and we have some of the highest road accident deaths in the world, right? Road accidents are one of the highest killers of people in South Africa. So all of these things are really awful. And one of the things that public transport does, right, is make people feel a lot closer to, to each other because it's a lot easier, right? If you can just get on a train and get somewhere quickly, it's a lot easier. You feel a lot safer. You feel uh, closer together, right, As in a community sense. You cut down on your carbon emissions, right? And you, well, you kind of start to allow people to have a lot more free time because they aren't commuting for, for long periods of time. And I think one of the reasons why we emphasize like the public transport aspect is because we don't see it as a solution for everyone to be driving like, uh, you know, an electric vehicle, like, sorry, Elon Musk, like, that's not, you know, that's not what we want, right? Because what that does, right, is, is number one, most people are not going to be able to afford an electric vehicle, right? Number two, electric vehicles still require a whole range of um, things that we have to extract out of the earth, right? And we don't want to keep extracting and extracting and extracting for the technologies, right? For like lithium batteries or whatever that are needed for these technologies. We're trying to limit our extractivism as much as possible. And it won't help with road safety deaths. There's, you know, there's a whole range of things. So we think public transport is really important. And similarly, public housing is really important because what, what apartheid did was not provide any adequate housing for people. And that obviously has like climate implications because people's houses are not, you know, 
really rich people in this country uh, have very high emissions profiles typically because they live in really big houses that are typically in suburbs they're far away they drive in they're poorly insulated you know a whole range of things uh, that contribute to that and then poor people have no access to services right and then maybe they have to rely on paraffin lamps they have to rely on you know a whole range of those kinds of things so Public housing, what it does is create a better life for people. They have a roof over their heads. They can have like, you know, I think your living environment uh, plays such a huge role in your mental health and your ability to find a job. There's studies that show that, right? So there's a whole range of things with that. And so what we advocate for is more public housing, densified public housing, right? So people living in closer quarters in a lot of ways is actually a good thing when it comes to this, right? And you build communities. And we've seen uh, recently a huge trend in gentrification and pushing people even further out of, of cities. So I think it's really important. And that's why public housing is important because you want people to be owning it, to not be able to commodify the houses, right? And not be able to, because that's what leads to gentrification. So I think all of these things kind of intersect in a lot of ways. And it's why we talk a lot in the report about uh, public affluence, right? And saying that it's very clear with the climate crisis that we need to cut down on consumption, Right. But telling many people in this world that they need to cut consumption seems obscene, right, because they have so little. And so what you need to try to do is say, how do we share the resources? So how do we give more people access to resources whilst not increasing the number of resources that we have? Right. And that's why public affluence is really important. So we're very pro you know, public parks public transport, as we've said, public housing and like integrating all of these things together. And I think that speaks to, again, uh, kind of trying to to claw back from the neoliberal period, which focuses so much on the individual, right? And I think that's what we're really trying to kind of fight back against. So it seems part of what you're getting at there is moving away from what some people call like a green austerity, where we're like telling people use less, consume less, um, and be less and all of that. But now we're talking instead about how do we invest in communities so that they can have what they need uh, you know, to, to live well. And so you're talking about sustainable, equitable communities rather than saying basically let's cut back on your consumption and let's be austere through our environmentalism. Sonia, did you want to add anything there? Just that I think that there's an opportunity for us to change the way we think about land, um, which moves beyond just a focus on ownership and towards a shift, you know, from the current intensive industrial agricultural model to a more localized agroecology model. And linked to this is the issue of ensuring food security and food sovereignty. Yeah, and I think the COVID pandemic really shows the importance of that, as we've seen so many people being even more food insecure than they were before. And I think that's really something that we need to be fighting. Yeah, and it seems, you know, when we're thinking about the ways that different ideas of justice intersect here, part of that food security, part of that food sovereignty has to be about land reform in the end and who controls the majority of land in South Africa. And so it seems when it comes to both the urban spatial inequalities, but also the more rural questions of land ownership, we really do in order to deal with climate justice, have to also deal with our colonial legacies Absolutely. and our legacies of apartheid. And I think that there's like such great work uh, that people can read around this that's happening all over the world. And there's so I'm really inspired by so many of the like housing rights activists, by the land rights activists, by indigenous activists all around the world who have really been saying this for a very long time, right? Like we we're saying this now, but like people have been saying this for a really long time, and it's 
it's very important to emphasize that all of these struggles are uh, are really interlinked. So I think with uh, that really interesting discussion where we've really woven together different elements of justice in ways that I think are really important because when we talk about just recovery, you know, the the main word there is mm-hmm. just, which comes from justice. And basically what we've been talking about is how do we tie in these different threads of justice into a vision for South Africa that, you know, benefits people, that takes care of our planet um, and our ecosystems, which also serve us in the long run, right? And, and so th- I think it's been a really rich discussion in helping to, to think about that more, but th- there's so much more that I think we could unpack. And, and I really want to encourage people to dive into this report that you two have written because it, it really is very illuminating in terms of tying those threads together and helping us think through what would a just recovery be like for South Africa and also at the global level because it speaks mm. about the international connections we face and how we need to be addressing the global economy. Yeah. I think that's really important. I, I would say I think the international dimension is really important, not only because uh, the climate crisis and the pandemic are global crises, right? But also because we need to find ways in which we, uh, so in South Africa, we have deep inequalities, but there are very deep global inequalities, right? And we've seen that really on display in, in countries inability versus ability to kind of tackle the the crisis and i think the focus on internationalism is really really important and we should keep emphasizing that and also just the importance of international solidarity the fact that all these struggles are intersecting um and that there we can find a lot of commonality in our struggles which is very affirming yeah, I think that's a really great place to to start to bring things to an end is this idea of solidarity because I think that is going to be really key in building out both the movements that we, we need to create in order to put pressure for a different political future. And on that note, how we like to end these podcasts for the Just Us and the Climate team is to think about a note of how people can get involved in supporting the cause for a fraction on this front. And of course, this podcast has been about a just recovery. So how are some ways that people could get involved in supporting the call for a just recovery? I think there's so many different things that you could do, right? There's a whole range of campaigns on at the moment, the Green New ESCOM campaign. There's a whole range of social movements who are doing a lot of stuff around this. And I think that you should try to get involved in those in in your community, right? Get involved with Reclaim the City, get involved with any kind of community group uh, within your own community or start one, right? Start, Start talking to people about this. I think a lot of people don't see these connections, right? And I think that it's really important for people to start to see them. So if you see the connections, if you think they're important, talk to the people in your life around those. Start a reading group. If you want to ask Sonia and I, we can send you any readings you want. Oh, yeah. Uh, feel free to reach out to us, like, however, and we can share any of the resources, you know, around the various aspects of the report that you might find interesting. And I think that start to get more politically involved, right? Because the climate crisis is a political crisis. It's not a kind of technical out of the, you know, thing. It's a, it's a political crisis and we have to change it politically. And so start to put pressure on government representatives, put pressure on your like local councillors, put pressure on, you know, all of these people to kind of integrate this, put, put pressure on your religious institutions. All of that, any any kind of community group that you're involved in, start to pressure them because this is something that impacts everyone. Sonia, anything you want to add there? 
Yeah, I would say get involved in any way that feels easiest and safest to you, um, whether that be in your communities at home or at work or even online. I believe in the power of social media and catalyzing change, right? I believe in organizing online. Um, and as Carol Lee spoke about, applying strategic pressure on our governments to act can also be done online. So, yeah, be vocal about it as much as possible. The call for a just recovery is was a call for justice and getting our voices heard really starts from being vocal um, about what we want and also about what we don't want. Thanks for that. And it does seem like that online activism has become increasingly important in our um, socially distant times. And speaking of getting online, if you want to find out more about the report, you can go to justrecovery.co.za. We're going to have a a web link just for the, the report. And there you can also find another way of getting involved. So as part of this report, we're also launching a national art competition where we're basically trying to get artists from across the country to begin to envision what does a just recovery look like? How do we combine these ideas of justice and, and really envision a different future for South Africa than the one that we don't want to go back to, that normal that is not acceptable, that never was acceptable? Um, and so I really encourage people to, to go to that website, enter the art competition, to read the report that's there, and uh, to, to really engage with this really interesting work. So thank you to Carolee and Sonia for the work that you did on this front. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was great. Hope we can do it again Thanks, soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.